have not yet been to a CMS colloquium. This is um, the weekly colloquium of comparative media studies. Um, we have these events uh, once a week, every week throughout the semesters. And we have been very lucky and fortunate this year to be collaborating on a kind of sub-series within the series um, with ACT and specifically with Marissa, Marissa John. And um, she will be introducing our guest speaker today, and I will pass it over to her. So, um, did you want to say a few things about CMS? What if, do we have, do we have a few people who may not be as aware of what the department is and what yeah, Even those in us are yeah, not quite aware of no. what the department is. Um, comparative Media Studies, for those of you who don't know, is a, um, is a program in which we uh, focus on various different kinds of media and they're both genesis and impact, genesis within and impact upon society. Um, and so we look at everything from um, histories of media technologies um, in the 19th and 20th centuries to um, what's now called legacy media like television and film to um, social media and machine learning and AI. Um, and interactive documentary. Um, so we are, we are a program that is grappling with media in its biggest sense, um, and media in the sense of it, the ways in which media shapes the way we see and interact with one another and with our world. So that is comparative media studies. And so there's, there's obviously a lot of connection between what we do and what ACT do, does, and so that's why this has, I think, been very, very fruitful this year. So um, ACT, for those of you guys who don't know, is a program that was founded in 1967 by Georgi Kepis, who was um, founded in this, this Bauhaus tradition in which he was thinking about similarly uh, artists and their impact on society. And when he was writing his mission statement for ACT, which was then called uh, a Center for Advanced Visual Studies, the focus of it was on environmental and uh, large-scale projects. Um, when it was taken over by Otto Pini in 1974, he added the word civic. So um, it's a, they saw themselves as working and resting themselves away from a traditional white box or MFA structure. So. The students in our program, many of whom are here, um, graduate with a Master's of Science, not an MFA. So I'm actually going to introduce Amy Rosenblum-McDean, who will then in turn recursively introduce Lauren Boyle. Um, I thought that, a so Amy is a curator and an educator, and she has um, worked with a number of museums in an interdepartmental fashion. Um, her focus has been um, Latin American art um, and she has been a, a, a really interesting and key person in terms of bringing um, a lot of Latin American voices to the United States um, and to the East Coast. Um, so she has worked with um, institutions like, uh, for the past 10 years, it's been the Guggenheim. Um, before that, it's been the Bronx Museum, Perez Art Museum Miami, um, Cisneros Foundation, um, which is an initiative or part of the MoMA. Um, and um, having had the honor to personally work with her, um, I really enjoy that she brings um, very, uh, a very keen spatial sensibility to the work that she, do, sh that she does. She's a really wonderful translator 
um, between an institution and artists. Um, and so um, because of her particular sensibilities, um, I wanted to have her here. So with that, I introduce Amy. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Marisa, it's amazing to work with you as an artist. Um, okay. I also think I got to do this today, which is a huge honor because I literally introduced this to your program or something like that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you guys were um, already aware of their work, but personally got to introduce them, which was an honor. And I'm going to start out by reading the bio that you guys provided, um, which gives a really beautiful overview of the work um, that you've done, and then I'll give my own two cents briefly at the end. So, this was established in 2010. It's a New York-based collective composed of Lauren Boyle, who's here today, Solomon Chase, Marco Rosso, and David Toro. Its cultural interventions are manifest across a range of media and platforms much like what you're talking about with your program here. We were really nodding hard when you were talking. There's a lot of crossover here. Um, a range of media and platforms from site-specific museum and gallery exhibitions to ongoing online projects. In 2018, the collective transitioned platforms from an online magazine, dismagazine.com, to a video streaming edutainment platform, dis.art, narrowing in on the future of education and entertainment. This enlists leading artists and thinkers. They really find leading artists and thinkers and bring them to light a lot of the time. Um, to expand the reach of key conversations bubbling up through contemporary art, culture, philosophy, and technology with the aim to inspire, inform, and mobilize a generation around the urgent issues facing us today and tomorrow. Um, they have continuously embraced, engaged, and reinvented important new platforms for the production, dissemination, and discussion of contemporary art. They're really leading the way forward in terms of what can contemporary art be now. I'm sort of, when I think of this, I sort of feel like there's this element of eye rolling. Like, um, I, I often work with conceptual artists or post-conceptual artists who roll their eyes at when sort of the lay public might talk about, well, how is this painting made? What kind of paint is it made with, right? Ugh, whatever. And then, then I read an article about you guys where it was talking about how now in art school, a lot of art students might roll their eyes when they're hearing the conceptual artists where the teacher is sort of talking about the theory that really buoys their work, the writing around their work. So they're sort of, I feel like they're sort of straddling a different place where, yes, there's theory, they're theory savvy, but at the same time, it's much more um, swallowing this, uh, the social web. Like what you're talking about, sort of, where various media has a genesis within and within society, and you're also setting its impact on society, is very much like what you guys are doing. And these guys have, they were the curators of the ninth Berlin Biennial for Contemporary Art, the present in drag, 
They created the Present in Drag in 2016. And they've exhibited and organized shows at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, La Casa Encendida in Madrid, Plug-in Institute of Contemporary Art in Winnipeg, Baltimore Museum of Art, and Project Native Informant in London. This has also been included in group exhibitions at MoMA PS1. You've also like curated a ton of events at MoMA PS1. Mm -hmm. um, Museum of Modern Art, of course, and the New Museum, all in New York, and Musée de Art Moderne in La Vie de Paris, ICA Boston, Museum, of Contemporary Art Chicago and Kunsthalle Charlottenburg and a ton of other stuff. They're incredibly active and have their finger on the pulse of what's really happening now. Um, Marisa, shall I hand it over or shall I say a few more words? I'm not sure, I'm not watching time. Okay. So I was sort of trying, I've known about this for a really long time because Marco Rosso, who's um, part of the project, uh, I got to show his art when I was a staff curator at the Bronx Museum of the Arts, um, maybe like... 2007? I don't know what you're talking oh, about. Yeah, a long, a long time ago, like at least 10 years ago. Um, and then was fascinated to see him change from focusing on his own work into this collective project. And my first awareness of it was that you guys gave a talk about scrunchies at the new museum. Um, and sort of watched how, and also early on, fairly early on, you were making stock photos that were available online. And then when you curated the Berlin Biennial, my mind was blown. And, but that, the fact that they're curators makes a lot of sense because they just have this eye for people doing fresh things that really um, fight oppression in a lot of ways. Um, gender fluidity all sorts of genre fluidity, all sorts of things like that. Um, so, but when I look at their work online, sometimes I'm like, do I really understand this? Because to me, what came across right away was like, they are really in touch with youth culture. And I feel like I'm pretty well in touch with youth culture, but I wasn't sure. So the other day I sat down with my 13-year-old daughter, who's really thoughtful about everything, and was like, can you explain your vision of this to me. So she said, so we were looking through your, your Instagram videos and she was like, okay, let's compare this to Instagram influencers today. Jay Versace and Yara Shahidi. So you may or may not know who those people are. Um, and what she was noticing is that there are things in common like this sort of very new feeling ways of addressing oppression and fighting oppression. Um, relatability, like they're presenting people who we all want to hang out with. Um, this notion of authenticity, like you're, present, you're taking constant selfies of yourself to show your authentic self. Also, I'm sure you'll address how you all got interested in that concept oh, of authenticity. I want to skip that, but well. Maybe, okay. <laughs> Maybe I think you can explain it better than I can. Um, so they have the sort of details and codes and aesthetic of youth culture, social web, corporate culture, marketing, you know, that markets authenticity down to a T. This is like in their toolbox. And then what they use it for is sort of showing us 
how contemporary art can move forward from here to benefit society, I would say. Yeah, something like that. Um, their excitement about the new is very apparent in their work. Their, our, all of our dread of the, irre the irrelevant. And one of the articles I read said that like, it feels like kind of an exclusive in-group, but if you just like click on it, you are part of the in-group and they're, they've engineered it to be that way. And their consistently original content cannot be denied. Like you just, over these 10 years have like, brought so much exciting new content into wide view. Okay, that's where I'm gonna stop, because I could go on and on, but they are fabulous, and it's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, that, was, that was beautiful and everything. Uh, and Marissa and everyone, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for inviting me and organizing this. Um, very excited. So today I just want to speak to you guys um, a little bit about uh, the evolution of DIS as a collective and as publishers um, and, and now our new pivot to a video streaming platform. Um, so we're going to watch some videos as well. Uh, so now we're four people, um, but once there were seven of us, and this, is, this image is actually um, the first picture we ever took of ourselves, and I think we did it in the summer of, or maybe it was like the fall of 2009, ages ago. Um, but the message here is that there is no, can we dim the lights actually? Sorry, it'll just be better for everyone <coughs> as possible. Um, but the message is that there really is no alternative. There's no alternative music, no alternative culture, or epoch, and in fact there isn't, uh, which made this in the end a kind of cultural critique. The early iteration of DIS was DIS Magazine, uh, which produced editorials and published mixtapes alongside discourse-heavy essays on topics like the post-contemporary data and labor. Uh, it was a platform that brought together the shy and the outgoing via shared interests in the internet and technology and how it was shaping our minds and our lives. So unlike other fashion and culture publications that were doing their best to kind of ignore the internet at the moment, our magazine was really by and for it. Um, we didn't really see ourselves as gatekeepers or traditional editors. We were really co-workers, um, connecting to multiple networks simultaneously, um, eager to collaborate with each other in multiple ways. So that could have been a boy band conceptualized specifically for a party like this one, HD Boys, um, a group of like five male artists that we like turned into a boy band for a party at PS1. Um, it was epic. Or editorials geared towards um, creating trends that were not necessarily market driven, like wearing four shoes at once. <laughs> Our approach really from the beginning was emblematic of this kind of paradigm shift uh, of the ethos of do it, do it yourself to that of do it with others. So rather than working as individuals, we opened, uh, we operated um, up as, we operated as an entity um, without any hierarchy and opened it up to be um, for, for many people. So this felt very reflective of the, of the time. Um, this was the basically just after the financial crisis. So with all these brick and mortar financial realities 
crumbling around us, there was this huge ushering in of a new kind of aspirational landscape. The entrepreneur, the gig economy, the sharing economy, um, the freelancer, the, you know, this, the startups and the spirit that we would all just have to work for ourselves now. Um, so beyond Dis Magazine, um, we also created many other digital platforms, as Amy mentioned, um, over the years. And this was really kind of like a bridge for us between curating and something else. Um, with exhibitions that uh, with exhibitions that kind of had corresponding digital platforms, um, this was one example of that. This is Disimages, um, which was a photo studio that we set up shop in a gallery for a month, um, where we had basically I think we had. 21 different shoots that happened over 30 days um, and like 15 different artists and we were kind of acting as producers and assistants for for artists to kind of just like like very like furiously create these like new options for stock photography um, all of it kind of dedicated to manipulating the codes and the trends in stock photography which could then be purchased on a website um, for both commercial and private use and then there was Disown, um, a retail store and an e-commerce platform where we enlisted artists to create conceptual products, like these whistleblower beanies by jogging, uh, or this hand-painted tracksuit that we designed. And it was actually painted by art students. So like you would come to the show and you would get like, your like tracksuit painted and you could, like <laughs> pick it up the next day when it dried kind of thing. All of these platforms um, reflected our kind of constant desire to reimagine the present and rethink existing formats. And then there's the Ninth Berlin Biennial, the present in drag, which was by far our largest curatorial uh, project to date. And in many ways, it really foreshadowed the world that we occupy today. Uh, I, I don't want to really go into the Berlin Biennial. It's like too massive in a way. But uh, when we came back from Berlin in 2016, the world looked really different to us and our place in it had changed um, as artists and as publishers and we had to kind of like figure out where we were going from here. And we read this book um, by Michelle Serres, the author of Thumbelina, who is also a mathematician and information theorist. Um, and he speaks of the little thumbs, meaning the generation who essentially gain access to the world through their thumbs. He not only attests to the, this generation's ability to operate devices with their thumbs, but also assumes that they no longer have the same references to space and time, and thus a transformation is emerging that cannot easily be grasped. So the question emerged, who needs a brain when we've got thumbs that can type and swipe across screens, seeking knowledge in a sea of online information too vast for any human mind to take in? We spent basically the second half of 2016 and 2017 thinking about the role of DIS as original content producers and as artists and uh, and what we should do next with ourselves. Um, and we thought about how this precondition really made it clear to us that there needs to be a kind of like we need to reevaluate methods and strategies for both presentation and development of knowledge bodies education as well as political participation and the processing of knowledge really have to face questions of, on a larger scale with a longer vision and increased sensitivity especially against this backdrop of fake news and filter bubbles 
And of course, while it's never been easier to get informed, a post-literate future really feels like a threat. Uh, we bookmark long articles and forget about them immediately, and a slideshow seems preferable to a deeper picture. For a century, individuals attempt to read capital and fail. So how can the application of the knowledge it contains succeed if the barrier of gaining this knowledge is so ineffective? When we try to get informed, the playing field is muddied by pundits, by trolls, conservatives, radicals, jargon, fake news, emails, and racist common threads. So we have accelerated into a world where revelation reveals only the act of revealing itself and not what has been revealed. And the very concept of alternative facts underlines not simply the unreliability of the communication, but far more dangerously, the indifference of the validity of the communication. This is actually, these are actually, most of these images are images that DIS created, um, but these two images that are superimposed on top of this photograph are of the same report, more or less, but like altered so that one makes it look like there won't be climate change and the other <laughs> one does. So this is what we were facing. Um, critiques are waged against this kind of unseen unknowable and formidable enemy. And for a moment, the world is in solidarity. It's me too, and then moving on. The 24-hour news cycle continues. Specialization and automation collude to breed a culture of incompetence. Technology's promise of productivity is now to keep us unproductive, scrolling and tapping to keep from doing, sleek apps hiding a complexity so great no single person can grasp and running at the Adderall speed of late capitalism. It's not that we can't focus, it's that we wanna focus on everything. So in this knowledge economy, characterized by the sheer glut of information stored and shared between data centers and devices across the globe, the media we ultimately consume is reduced and compressed. And the simplicity preached by corporate design and lifestyle hacking just won't cut it. So for us, simplification is our enemy. We know that the way that we process information has changed, and yet formal education looks relatively the same. We've distributed our cognition across devices and rely on horizontal networks of knowledge to s that spread across hyperlinks. And our knowledge is now the shape of a cloud. So we believe that the future of learning is much more important than the future of education. So binge learning learning by osmosis, learning not to store information, but only how to connect things, how to build narratives, and make sense out of a disjointed, networked information and prosthetic memory. Um, so this word, edutainment. Not sure we like it, but we're using it. Um, it kind of stuck with us, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's education and entertainment. Um, we, we think about how, you know, from puppets to prehistoric legends, education and entertainment have really been intertwined. Um, and contrary to the more cynical among us, uh, educational entertainment doesn't have to come at the price of either. There's no good reason you can't learn from entertainment and no good reason entertainment can't be educational. So if we learn our ABCs from Big Bird, why not critical theory from a, rest for, from a cooking show? The joint engagement of entertainment is no mere gamification of education, it's understanding and taking full advantage of the ways that we learn under the present media conditions. 
So to indulge in the singular is to conservatively oppose the power of the hybrid. So our notion of genre is that it can only be understood in relation to the pre-established conventions. Genre's self-sameness ensures that it is clean, that it clings to categories and thus legibility and orthodox interpretation. It's the generic. The generic is about the ability to be recognized. However, in this mediascape of an ever-evolving plurality of genres, we recognize not the genre we know, but the genre's constant becoming. So we want it to be genre non-conforming. So it was really important and constructive for us to decategorize and recognize the productive messiness and necessary hybridity that shapes our reality. So we ourselves must be willing to become strange. And if success is the measure by which you fit a category, then you create your own category. And you succeed in a, in a genre invented by yourself. So, Following the thinking today, we learned with the thumb and no longer the head, and that new genres are necessary to break through, and taking into account that the way that information is being distributed and consumed, um, we closed the magazine and we launched Dis.Art, a radical streaming education platform. So I'm gonna play just a really short trailer. This is something that we put out um, just when we launched, and then Hello, 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 hey, hello, hello. Welcome to this. I'm just gonna stop that. That was really painful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's wrong, but it doesn't sound like that. The sound quality is actually really good in the video. Let's try it again. Give me a try again. Hello, 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 hey, hello, hello. Welcome to this genre non conforming edutainment. I call myself a sea evangelist. Do you believe in God? Memes are black. Blackness is a meme, isn't it? We could save the world. Shines. Money is like a skeleton. A good fact is only mostly true about something in particular, whereas a good concept is slightly true about a lot of things. Art itself is not progressive. It mutates. So the material presented um, by DIS today is really the result in change in attitude towards the present, which aims to meet the demands of contemporary social, political, and economic complexity at eye level. So we enlist artists, as you said, Amy, um, to kind of expand the reach of key conversations bubbling up through philosophy and activism and art and culture and so on. Um, offering these kinds of micro-speculations in video form and asking questions and undertaking complex systems, infrastructures, and networks. So on the platform, um, these films and series and documentaries now serve as sort of windows uh, or interfaces for investigations into the present. 
every video proposes something, a solution, a question, or a way of thinking about our shifting reality. Um, the exhibitions organized by DIS, um, like for instance this one at the De Young in San Francisco, um, are basically like, they're essentially physical representations of our digital platform. They are these audiovisual exhibitions in the form of an escalating and experimental experience between thumbs, screens, and eyes. At La Casa Encendida, um, each room was dedicated to a different theme, um, and light boxes lined the walls, revealing underlying concepts and exposing our thought processes along the way. You'll recognize some of these images in the picture. They're, they're also in this presentation. One of the rooms was actually dedicated to how we might penetrate the conditions of the present in order to meet them in a formative and not helpless way with regards to education. In this room, um, we introduced one of my like all-time favorite series, uh, which is General Intellects with Mackenzie Bork, which is actually, um, it's based on a book called General Intellects um, that Verso published. And we kind of picked it up and we knew Mackenzie and we asked him, can we turn chapters of this book into like short series? You know, there's too many things I want to read. I can't read everything. Like, can we make something out of this? So um, this is one of the shorter of the, of the episodes in the series, so I'll just play the whole thing. It's um, actually about Paul Preciado. My name is Mackenzie Walk. I want to talk to you about general intellects. Once upon a time, we had public intellectuals, but maybe in the digital media age, that's not what we need anymore. We need to think about general intellects who are both part of and can explain a universe of digital media. The example that I want to talk to you about is Paul B. Preciado. What I like about Preciado is the way they take away the whole idea of a natural body, not just trans bodies, the products of medical, pharmaceutical industries, but cis bodies as well. All bodies are artifacts, particularly of massive doses of hormones. The bodies are also produced by images, so perhaps we can think about a pharma porno capitalism as being the world that we all have, a kind of biocapitalism that works on a microscopic scale and passing through bodies of all kinds. We're used to thinking that the industrial mode of production that's passing away was called Fordism after Henry Ford. But what if it was Hugh Hefner who really had our number and the production particularly of a certain sort of platonic ideal of the cisgendered heterosexual body was what that production mode really had to offer to the present. What if it was not so much car design as sex design that the 20th century has bequeathed to the 21st century? But far from being a realm of freedom, maybe what we're looking at is more microscopic forms of control, controls of body through regimes of images, controls of bodies through regimes of hormones. And rather than start from some idea of a natural body underneath it all, perhaps all bodies are products of technologies and gender. But what I particularly like about that the other's take on this is that it's a kind of low theory. It's not just the high theory of the seminar room, it's also the low theory of everyday life, of trying to occupy some place, time in between gender. Preciado talks about trying to have a post-pornographic way of being. Perhaps we could add to the traditional tools of the avant-garde in terms of 
images and aesthetics, a kind of microscopic intervention into the state of the body using all the resources of modern pharmacology, but treating these more as a commons than as a form of industrial production of the body for the benefit of somebody else for a ruling class. But the other gives us new ways of thinking about what economies run on now in the 21st century, besides images and code. They also work on the biological level in the most microscopic way. So that's what this particular version of the general intellect has to offer to our particular circumstances. Thank you. Um, yeah, so a literal head, uh, a talking head. That's what we made from that one. Um, another room in La Casa Encendida, the show in Madrid, um, that was actually focused on the notion of nationality and citizenship. It's also a theme, like kind of a running theme on, on DIS. It's one of our verticals. So um, this is an image um, of 60 million Americans can't be wrong by Christopher Clinton Thomas and Annika Coleman. And they ask, what good is a border after the internet? They propose a sort of new liquid citizenship, a world in which citizenship is erased through cloud technology, where homes are streamable and nationality unmoored. Of course, there's this assumption of inherent good in cloud computing, and that doesn't really fully acknowledge the kind of privilege and access that these systems already take for granted. Um, but it's really just one more example of a sort of generational disposition towards exit over place. <coughs> and this is kind of like the government's equivalent to entrepreneurship. Um, the tendency to favor opting out over staying in to create new structures rather than improve that what already exists, to build a startup instead of a career in an existing organization, or to start a new country. But just as globalization served as a euphemism uh, for and smokescreen for Western neoliberalism, the same happens with the ever-expanding tech colonization. The Seasteaders uh, by is a is a 30-minute documentary by Jacob Horace Goodman and Daniel Keller, and it's kind of it's it's really quite chilling, um, and it's it's documenting the first um, Seasteading Institute conference out in Tahiti. Uh, the Seasetting Institute was actually founded by Patrick Friedman. He might, you might recognize that name. He's the grandson of Milton Friedman. Um, and it was also backed by Peter Till, this, this institute. And it sort of envisions this like fluid world where governments <coughs> are selected in an open market and climate change can be hacked. Uh, seeing rule by the majority as ineffective and oppressive, the Seasteaders propose a future of floating micro-governments where user citizens can detach and rejoin at will, and law looks less like a constitution and more like software. We're just gonna watch, this is a short trailer for the, for the documentary. Mm. Oh, I deleted, oh, wait, did it work? There you go. <laughs> 
imagine a place that would fulfill all of our requirements, and where could we possibly find a place like this if we searched for years? It was that Bernie man where our founder, Patrick Friedman, was wandering around and he came up with the idea for Seasteading. technology to vote with your house. And this will, in principle, unleash a Cambrian explosion of governments. I'm a libertarian. For my entire life, I wanted to save the world. I'm from the United States. Americans agree on nothing. The one thing we do agree on is that the current system is not working, and nobody is happy. The basic democratic system, I don't think, is very effective. Steve Wozniak did not change Hewlett-Packard from the inside. We want to talk about a new world. This is the undiscovered continent. We can't do it without you. You are our hosts. Update is the French Polynesian government, the parliament there, they actually, um, they said no. They vetoed the bill that would have allowed the, sea, the, the, the forming of a, like a special sea zone for them to operate. Um, it actually happened like probably six months after this, this film came out. Not because of that, no doubt, but the people who were um, in the film were very fearful that it could cause it and they actually um, they actually threatened us and they wanted us to block it in France and then you know and then uh, Tahiti and like all these different places so that no one would see it um, it was it was weird but these movements um, really got us thinking um, more and more about our political and economic landscape it's true that constitutions evolve over time but it's not what we like to think about as progress. Um, it's not a linear trajectory where everyone conforms to liberal democracy over time. As you know, liberal democracy has actually been declining. Um, it peaked 10 years ago, perhaps, um, and now more and more countries are turning authoritarian. And in America, we're less de democratic today than we were two years ago. So the question is really why? Perhaps because the weak link of in capitalism is democracy and vice versa. Capitalism will undermine the capacity for democracy eventually. So it's possible that, you know, maybe even more so than climate change or as much as widening inequality is the defining debate of our time. Our friend and uh, leading inequality expert, um, economist, Moritz Schulrich, um, who we've been working with on a few projects, which I'll show you, uh, he said that the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few has not been as extreme since the Gilded Age of the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and other robber barons of the 20th century. And just as in the Gilded Age, the concentration of great fortunes in the hands of the few quickly turned into a problem for everyone and for democracy. But in order to develop new ideas and policies to combat accelerating inequality, we really have to understand why the concentration of financial and material wealth has increased so much. So we need to understand what are the factors responsible for the
the changes in distribution of wealth over time? What are the algorithms that code the changes in the distribution of financial resources in a society? So our most recent exhibition, titled A Good Crisis, uh, is at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And it centers around this kind of trilogy of films that deal with the uncertain economic prospects of millennials in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and housing collapse. In the aftermath of the Second World War, Winston Churchill remarked, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, these videos consider this provocation in relation to more recent crises, asking, what possibilities for change did the 2008 crash create or more probably waste? Was it a good crisis? If so, for whom? So giving the exhibition the title, um, the next video which we're going to watch is called A Good Crisis, and it features the Night King from HBO's Game of Thrones discussing the missed opportunity for an economic revolution. He explains how the financiers and CEOs now revel in a feudal frenzy of a new rentership society, a term that they propagated by, uh, has been propagated by private equity firms to explain the economic shift that has seen the renter population of the United States soar in the aftermath of the housing crisis. crashed in 2008. Predatory loans wiped out 50 years of wealth gains of the middle class. If not an outright conspiracy, they simply conspired to take advantage. Now Wall Street wants to be your landlord. The housing collapse presented a rare opportunity. Global private equity firms like the Blackstone Group are devising a new rentership society. High rents and weak millennial incomes make it all but impossible to raise a down payment. The convenient claim that millennials have evolved out of home ownership has taken hold. Welcome to the Airbnb future. Feeling left out? You wasted a good crisis. 2007-2008 came and went, and for what? You squandered the perfect opportunity. Small-time property ownership is dying. Widening inequality is defining our time. Forget the Gilded Age. This is medieval. But it wasn't always like this. U.S. tax law of the 1910s and 20s was progressive, resisting the patrimonial European model. The rich paid more via the Great War than the Great Depression, saved by the New Deal, followed by the Second World War and a massive boom. Top earners paid more than 90% tax. It was the golden age of American capitalism and of American homeownership for the middle class. But don't forget, the U.S. was built on violent racial capitalism. From sharecropping to redlining to the present, homeownership has been systematically denied to black Americans. The market crash in 1973-74 brought post-war growth to a halt. The 70s Reagan deregulation, decline of unions, rise of globalization and new technologies. Income inequality blossomed. And maybe you assume income inequality drives wealth inequality? It doesn't. Wealth is about assets. Rich and poor households hold different assets. Poor households have little wealth, mostly in cash or bank accounts. Middle-class households have almost all of their wealth in their houses. Rich households own stocks and business equity. For 40 years, the middle class enjoyed a favorable housing market. Their wages were stagnant, but their home values rose, and so did wealth. Enter 2007. 
The crash was a long time coming. The note class wasn't meant to recover. Real estate companies did though. Number one largest owner of real estate in the world, Blackstone, uncoincidentally grew fourfold since 2007. At the root prices was subprime mortgages and predatory lending. Taxpayers bailed out the banks. The banks took the money, turned around and bought the homes they foreclosed on right out from under the taxpayers. The new landlord, by divine right, the billionaire, will remain safe from insurrection in their luxury survivalist condo built in a former missile silo protected by armed guard. How futile. The CEO of Blackstone, the company that bought up all those foreclosed homes, Stephen A. Schwartzman, is the first executive to pull in a $1 billion annual salary. That's taxed at rates barely more than the annual salary of the average millennial, who's making 20% less than a boomer at the same age in real dollars. We're beyond the age of debt and under the age of full-on predation, Schwartzman wants Americans to live in serfdom. The new 2018 tax reform pushed through this year punishes people for owning homes, the one form of wealth middle-class people have. There has been a redistribution of wealth to the wealthy. Maybe you're thinking this is all just some baseless fear-mongering. This isn't a projection prognostication or a model. This is just a coming. You wanted an economic revolution? We're in one. So that was the first in the series, and the next video is titled Obama Baroque. Um, and it's about the financial hopelessness of the Great Recession in contrast with the aspirational lives depicted in Gossip Girl, as well as President Obama's message of hope. Um, I don't know how many of you guys watched Gossip Girl, <laughs> but uh, by the time the teen television drama um, first aired on September 19, 2007, the subprime mortgage crisis that triggered the Great Recession was well underway. One year later, on the same day that the Bush administration announced the bailout plan, four million Americans uh, tuned in to watch the opulent lifestyles of the show's wealthy elite. So this was the same year that then candidate Barack Obama campaigned on a promise of hope. The term Obama Baroque is actually, you know, um, it's basically like the pop cultural equivalent of the recovery. It was coined by Sean Monaghan, <coughs> um, who we collaborated with on this script. And it's a reference to the kind of decadence and the pop that uh, thrived in entertainment and online during this period of economic upheaval, which was also the period that discs was like peak discs as well. So it's like a very um, important moment for us. <coughs> so I'll just press this one, see what you think. I don't know why I have to do that twice. CNBC boomed that doomsday was upon us. 
But after TARP shored up the banks and financial capitalism was assured it would die another day, we moved on to another media story. The 2008 election, Barack Obama as our first black president. Meanwhile, the labor market lay in tatters, foreclosures marched forward, and underwater mortgages ensured family wealth accumulation turned into family debt obligations. Hysteria that the apocalypse was upon us then tacit acceptance of monotonous destruction. That was how we landed in the glam dystopia I like to call the Obama Baroque. Obama's election and Occupy Wall Street, we made soap opera-style content for teens and late-maturing millennials, confectionary lip gloss and smoky eyes, brand names shining brighter than the sun, storylines referred obliquely to the market, which always had clear class implications, stock problems for the haves, housing problems for the have-nots. The Obama Baroque was the pop-cultural equivalent to the recovery. That ever-elusive thing we were told was happening but never seemed to really be happening, encapsulated ever so wonkily in the ubiquitous phrase, jobs saved or created. It would take another mediagenic crisis to convince everyone that the financial crisis was less of an oopsie and more of an oh fuck. Occupy Wall Street unlocked a social media-centric look more influenced by Tumblr than runways, clothing as rare meme rather than brand manifesto. In 2016, Obama Baroque popped with a bang, not a number. Do I even need to explain why? Take one look at what happened to the gang since we left off and you'll see. Poor little Jenny Humphrey. She's been sold out. The world she inherited is unsustainable. Greed and incompetence left her gen to clean up the mess. When we last left off, Jay was working for Waldorf Designs. But as always, B could be, well, be. Poor little Jay. Did they ever teach you the interests of workers and owners are diametrically opposed? Workers should benefit from the surplus value they create. Localized enterprise. Tax income from property, not labor. And inheritance. Bring back the death tax. Lock your doors, Upper East Siders. These kids are canvassing. It's gonna take a revolution to get the government to stop garnishing your wages for student loan payments. Until then, we're sure Bushwick is nice. XOXO Safety Net. That was really fun to film. Um, but yeah, we were, in that case, we were really targeting a very specific demographic um, and trying to connect the dots between Tumblr and Occupy Wall Street. Um, and we saw it kind of as a recruitment tool for the DSA. The third video in the series, I think this is this is the last one I'm going to show you, um, is UBI, The Straight Truvada, which was written by Christopher Glasick. Uh, and for us, it was sort of like this incredibly fresh way of talking about universal basic income um, and reframing the debate. It wasn't really, it was not intended to be a total endorsement of the policy, but it was a critique of the arguments against it. Um, and for this, we really wanted to create a kind of like um, you know, visual allegories that were as rich as the text was. I don't know why every time I do this. 
The first European settlers in the United States were a blend of greedy entrepreneurs and millennial cultists. The Puritans came to New England to build a new Jerusalem, a shining city on the hill. Further south, British colonists built a slave labor machine to extract resources from the earth. From the first, the country combined a merciless focus on work and wealth with a revolutionary interest in a new world order. The founding fathers were torn between utopian idealism on the one hand and a ruthless, sometimes genocidal realism on the other. They were also, of course, committed rapists. One of my great disappointments in being a gay man is that I'll never walk through life with the cyborg glamour of a surgically implanted IUD. IUDs are the holy grail, not only of birth control, but of an entire church of utopian futurism. Shaped like a crucifix with its top chopped off, small enough to wear as a necklace, IUDs offer near total protection against pregnancy and its attendant anxieties. This is an IUD? Its wearers, if an IUD can be said to be worn, are empowered to fuck without fear. Its newest versions are unambiguously technological, combining elements of hardware, plastic, and software, hormones. Even the name of the most popular form of IUD, Mirena, evokes a digital voice assistant. IUDs are tech, IUDs are chic, IUDs are fashion. They are practical and they are political. They drive some of the most promising visions of accelerationist escapism. Although I'll never be inserted with an IUD, as of 2013 I've had the option, along with my gay friends, of consuming an analogously utopian technology, an elliptical blue pill called Truvada. Truvada is gay birth control, providing users, if Truvada can be said to have users, with near total protection from HIV. Within a few years of its release, New York City and San Francisco were swimming in Truvada-drenched sex parties, gripped by a climate of erotic abandon not seen or felt since the days before AIDS. More and more, the 30-year AIDS era began to look like an interregnum. In those days, gay citizenship depended utterly on condoms, not necessarily on using condoms. High rates of infection testified to the fact that many were not using them, but on participating in the condom-driven cycle of guilt and transgression, with its corresponding theology of neg and pogs, the gay version of Calvinist predestination. Truvada held out the promise of blasting beyond this duality, enabling users to reach a new, transcendent state, neither neg nor pogs, but post. But what good is a sexual revolution without an economic one? The right to promiscuity is a kind of freedom, perhaps, but it's impossible to use if you have nowhere to live or no food to eat. In order to live promiscuously, without fear of starvation or homelessness or ostracization, extra protection is needed. Progressive factions are now looking for ways to inoculate people against financial risks. The highest profile solution, universal basic income, comes with a techno-utopian machine that is almost medicinal. Universal basic income is a monthly check from the government given to every adult. In its strongest versions, it provides citizens with enough income to feed and house themselves without needing a job, holding out the promise of a revolutionary decoupling of life and work. Critics, though, have attacked it from a number of angles, dismissing it as a Silicon Valley trick, as a license to get divorced, do drugs, or play video games, as a sneak attack on the labor movement. Critics warn of unintended consequences. Eliminating all low-paying jobs will work out terribly for poor people, they say. And rolling up all federal benefits into a single monthly check could wreak havoc on the social safety net. Then again, critics also wrung their hands initially about birth control and Truvada, worrying they would lead to plummeting condom use and a surge in reckless immorality. In the 60s, many doctors would only prescribe birth control to married women. 
And even today, there are doctors that will only prescribe Truvada to someone in a monogamous relationship. The problem with this critique is that condom use was already declining before the introduction of Truvada, creating an urgent need for an alternative. Analogously, it might be said that UBI doesn't devalue work. Work has already been devalued. Rich and poor alike rail against bullshit jobs. When it comes to robots, people might say they fear them, but their revealed preference provides data to the contrary. People fucking love robots. Roombas, mechanical companion pets of the terminally ill, Siri, Alexa, and Cortana. UBI sounds like pie in the sky, but the future always does. So all of these videos, those, those last three videos, um, and the images as well that you've been seeing were kind of released as a coordinated campaign leading up to the 2018 midterm elections. And I think what this series and this exhibition um, was trying to illustrate was that the way things are today is not natural. It's not the nature of economics and it's not human nature, it's policy. And it doesn't have to be this way. What is clear is that Ownership has radically changed in the way that we own or don't lend or give our time through occupations, bodies, or other forms of value creation has been altered almost beyond recognition. Subscriptions and sharing have further consolidated wealth, liquid, material, and intellectual into the hands of the fewer and fewer corporations and individuals. Ownership is not over, it's just out of reach for the many. So as companies manipulate crises to their benefit and dodge labor laws and employee benefits by increasingly relying on contractors and freelancers and on-demand user, employee, drivers, and dog walkers, um, we have this situation. So in hindsight, when we look back on this period, there was really this trifecta. There was a financial crisis, there was Obama in power, and there was this rapid expansion of the internet. And we were flooded with innovation at the same time the, com the economy was completely off the rails. So this late capitalism that was bred just brilliantly has this ability to seem like it's getting better and we're having more while it's only getting worse, convincing us we have access to more when we actually have less. So the future, um, in our opinion, demands not just our expertly honed skills in watching, but also understanding. And this is really our proposal for an audience. There's no show without someone to watch it. So our aim is really to foster a kind of solution-driven community, at the core of which is a desire to rethink the way that social, political, and economic uh, structures operate, and to imagine uh, generative blueprints outside of the dominant narratives. So we really hope that this kind of video curriculum of ours will trigger conversation and curiosity in classrooms, and at home, in libraries, and so on and help mobilize this next generation around the crises you know, that we're facing all of us right now. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. So I'm going to total open book. Any questions anyone has? Don't be shy. <coughs> What, uh, what's the economic model? Our economic model? Yeah, how is it? So, so we've basically been, this last year and a half, we've piggybacked off of exhibitions. So we've been really fortunate. We've had 
one show after another, and that's been able to produce the content that you saw, that that we've made. But we're actually a subscription. We are a subscription service. Uh, individuals can subscribe and do. Um, and now what we're working on is getting it into libraries, public libraries, universities, um, campuses, and into museums. So, you know, like if you're a member of the Whitney, you also get access to this.r. And it's an agreement between the Whitney and DIS. Because that, so that's our economic model um, going forward. And it's, it's actually coming at a really good time because I think a lot of libraries are realizing that they have, um, they could do more in terms of like supporting independent like film, video artists, you know, and not only just kind of piping in, you know, Hollywood films into their libraries and their collections. Like, and yeah, so there's there's an interest there. And for us, it's about getting to a wider audience. Like, we know that we're kind of preaching to the choir when it comes to someone who's like just looking at the dis Instagram feed. You know, they probably share a lot of our views, um, and they enjoy it. But we really need to like get out of there and into other places. That's the goal. Yes? Uh, do you have a, it's related to that question, uh, do you have a political vision, uh, sort of, you know, or? I mean, or we believe in democracy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, what, are, are, what kind of politics do you support, or are you interested in supporting, or? Um, well, I mean, I think that we're, you know, we're left, you know, we're way left of center. Um, but our interest is really in, I think, um, I think what people, what people want from DIS and what we want to provide eventually is kind of a way of operating outside of the system where we don't feel like, um, like, you know, there's, there's all these invisible reasons why we can't have things the way we want. So we want to try, we want to try and break free of those kind of barriers to think about something longer term in the future, like big goals, you know, um, where caretakers are paid, you know, um, you know, if you're caring for your, your, you know, um, your aging, dying grandmother, you get paid. I don't know, you know, like that it, things that, that labor is valued and, um, and yeah. And everyone can can live a healthy life. And of course, you know, we don't think that the marker of a healthy economy is how many billionaires you have in it. You know, that's actually the opposite. It's a marker of that's a bad economy. You've got too many billionaires and other people just can't get by, you know. So I'm voting for Bernie. Go ahead. And a couple of questions. <coughs> also piggybacking to the former questions. Uh, at the beginning, you said about the earliest slogan, there is no alternative. Well, that, yeah. And uh, it seems that with what you're creating, the, the language, the visual language, and even like the spoken language is so coded that it seems to also be coming from a place of like subculturality. Mm -hmm. like you have to have some certain type of sensibility, I think, to engage into this, which makes me like go to another point that you mentioned about like DIY subcultural platforms mm -hmm. and publishing. Mm -hmm. You think, I don't know, I grew up with like tr uh, a magazine from San Francisco called yeah. Trasher that was really yeah, cool and like, it, it was kind of like outrageous, politically correct, but it yeah. carried all the kind of like codes of like underground skateboarding yeah. uh, c culture. But at the same time, how like you said that, that the idea is to spread it, like spread it wide and try to like blanket some 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 type of like new audiences or like cultivate audiences. But is it 
it's difficult to navigate that 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 part, you know, because if you see like you see, for example, what what happened with what's called the alt right, you know, that also mm -hmm. was very subcultural mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, it we're did, definitely competing with them. It did present you know? itself as an alternative yeah. in a way, right? Because I don't know, like mainstream. If you see mainstream culture, I'm from Colombia and I live yeah. in Colombia most of my life, but when you see mainstream culture in the United States, you can pretty much sense that there's like a, a leftist sensibility in the type of like mass media that people consume around here mm -hmm. in the states are like very center but it's not like yeah. outly right you know that like we see it's, or maybe it's because we're in academic environments but you see i don't know like fox news is like highly mocked by academic people yeah. so i don't know it's just that i'm trying to like what i'm trying to say is it's is it's, it's difficult for you guys how do you see going and like how do you become mainstream or like how do you keep cer certain type of integrity that makes the alternative kind of like be relevant without kind of like I like mean it doesn't it doesn't take much honestly like like counterculture subcultures get consumed so quickly that like you know it might feel like that for a minute but then it's not anymore but also I think as you can see like if you know just if you you, you brought up the alt-right you know and their influence on you know media and like online cultures and things like that I mean uh, there's not that many people combating that narrative online in a, like visually like stunning way. I mean, they, I, I don't want to go too deep into that, but, um, but I think there's a place for being kind of weird online. And I think, you know, Amy, I was talking to Amy earlier, she was like, I think we were saying, you were saying how like nothing shocks young people, like this isn't weird to them. Like they were just like, uh, like we're the same age, so like we think it's kind of like, you know, erotic and like interesting and with this or that, but they're kind of like, yeah, cool, I get it. You know, like there's just like there's a certain kind of like passivity to like the way that these images are, you know, um, consumed, where you kind of have to be over the top a little bit to get people's attention. But uh, that's I don't know. That probably didn't no, answer your yeah. question at all. But in terms of going more mainstream and things like that, I think there will be opportunities. You know, all of these. What I showed you were kind of things that were also um, made for exhibitions as well. You know, so there's also that aspect of it where it's like you know there's a show that we're pitching right now um, to production companies that is more mass and will look more like chef's table in a way than what we're making now and, but that's also I mean the subject matter for us is really important and interesting and um, and futuristic and things like that but you know there's I think there's a place for all of it you know in what we do what we want to do in the future I think there, there is a thread in what you showed that was very, like, economically driven. Yeah. But I just want to point out that if you look into their work further, like, there are also other threads, oh, yeah. like, based on... Yeah, we have, I mean, there's, like, four main categories. Identity, nations, capital, and nature, you know? So those are, everything's kind of fitting in technology. And, you know, there's media as well as another thread that we go through. This one, I, I focus mainly on this one trilogy and how it connected to kind of these like, um, you know, uh, new political ideologies, I suppose, in a way, or like, or like contrasted more than connects. But please do go on to dis.art and sign up. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it feels like it's quite tricky juggling all of those things. I was kind of surprised that you described it like plainly as like a, a leftist position. Um, well, I was asked what my, like, what oh, our yeah. viewpoint was. I mean, in terms of having an agenda, we do allow, like, there there are different forms of thoughts. Like, the seasteading documentary, 
like I saw it as very critical, but another person might not see it that way, you know? Right, yeah, and the I mean, that's like Daniel Keller and like similar as well. Uh, yeah, and Christopher Clinton Thomas's his whole thing is super, you know, like the critique of that is that it's like completely misconstruing Marx and it's totally neoliberal and like for profit and this and that. But underlying, there are a lot of questions that we're open to, to hosting, even though there's critique with them, you know? But I interrupted you. I Sorry. guess another kind of thing I'm curious about, so it seems like it's like, can you hold a kind of like, sort of accelerationist or sort of like embracing all of these like new aesthetics and everything else, whilst also maintaining like a, a, a sort of left of center, left wing kind of project. And within like the kind of current media context. And part of the, what I'm curious about is how that relates to like ideas around labor. Like when you talk about labor within the context of this like, the Gossip Girl thing, when some sort of these kind of imageries and this kind of like, like, for lack of a better word, kind of millennial kind of circulation kind of <coughs> aesthetics. Um, how does that relate to like a more traditional like left-wing kind of concerns like plainly like unionization, labor rights, actual kind of like popular movements and so on? I think it's just the more the merrier. You know, the more people that are talking about this in any way that they want to talk about it, the better. The, you know, there's a new production company called Beans TV, um, and they're they're doing basically it's like a, a Netflix for socialists, and but it's super. You have to understand, it's like it sounds like what it is. You know, it is what it sounds like. It's very dry and it's very like, um, um, you know, like. All the videos are very like front loaded, you know, and they are simplifying things. They're talking about really important things, you know, but visually they're not giving, there's no, um, there's no really added value to what they're making, which is fine. It's important. Like I like love that work, you know, but it's not the kind of work that we would make, you know, because we do come from a, um, you know, artistic and aesthetic like place. So, um, but I, I, you know, it's also, you know, we continue to produce and, you know, as the way we worked for Dis Magazine is actually not that dissimilar from how we work now. Um, we make things, we put it out, like, it doesn't necessarily mean we feel the same way about them a year later, you know? Like, it's an evolution for us and, you know, we just keep making more and more things. Yeah, Marissa? The thing that is, like, um, what's super interesting to me is, because um, what I'm trying to do in my mind is, Dissector describe the, the structure and, and how it is that you, your, your videos can operate. And what's interesting is there's this kind of dissociative element in mm. some of the aesthetics, and you know, some of the talking heads, mm -hmm. you know, have these um, demonish masks. Which is the, I, the class I teach you about demons, so that was oh. myself. Um, but so there's this dissociation that's taking place, um, and the, the operating logic, as I see it, is aesthetic driven and kind of edutainment, um, no hold barred edutainment. Um, and the other thing that's, um, I think, kind of mind boggling or dizzying about your work that's interesting is um, so if an analogy works where you're comparing one thing to another to get to this third thing, mm -hmm. but you're like in the the UBI video, it's like you're comparing three things to get to four, to this window down to this other one. Yeah. So mentally, you're, what's interesting is that one is having to hold these four things together, and twinning them together, yeah. braiding the, these strands, which is um, it's an interesting structure. But yeah, I, I could you talk a little bit about the aesthetics? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that our, you know, we have different objectives with each thing that we either commission or produce, you know, and everything kind of, like, these actually, I feel like the ones that I, I showed you today are kind of, the like, kind of cohesive in terms of how they, like, operated in a way, but there's other ones that are much pl more plain, like, plainer, you know, talk show, um, animation, you know, worm talks, like, I don't know, you know, tells a story, beautiful voiceovers and like fish, you know, there, there's totally varying degrees. Um, and these were kind of the, in a way more elaborate, these last three, but, um, but like if you just take like the Gossip Girl or the Night King, I mean, those for us were just like, we knew we wanted to like, like everything operate has its own kind of rules, I suppose, you know, like we knew we wanted to release these around the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis and around and do a big push around the midterm elections. So um, we were making kind of campaign ads. We were trying to find things like Game of Thrones, you know, um, that would attract people to, to watch that maybe otherwise wouldn't. So like Game of Thrones fans or like Gossip Girl, um, for example, is like, there's actually a whole genre on YouTube about like Gossip Girl, like um, fan fiction and reenactments and things. <laughs> so we were kind of like copying that, trying to reach those people, which are not necessarily our audience in a way. At the same time, yeah, we want to we want our audience to think it's cute too. So we're working with fashion designers um, to costume the the whole thing, and um, and that's like I think like you know fashion is kind of important to us as well so fashion people actually are like really not very political like a lot of them um and and young people like really young people like i don't know i mean some they don't even know what occupy wall street is possibly you know like there, so there's this kind of like desire to connect with an, a younger generation in 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 those you know supposedly gossip girl um with Gossip Girl, I think we actually, like, before we had the script, we knew what we, we wanted to make. We knew we wanted to draw a parallel between, you know, the financial crisis and Gossip Girl and this period of kind of, like, you know, opulence, which is a part, we were part of that, you know? Like, Dis Magazine, if you look at the kind of richness of the imagery that we were creating and the lightness of the mood, you know, it was totally DIY, but it came from a place of, like, just like, oh shit, like nothing matters anymore, like go crazy, like whatever, you know, like, um, so I think we were trying to embody a little bit of that and the script kind of had to like fit that in a way. So that one was kind of reverse engineered, I think. Yeah, sorry. To what extent do you consider yourself a curatorial body and then to what extent are you focusing more on the platform and content side of things? And then how do you negotiate those two aspects of the disc brand? And then also, are you still a, a non-hierarchical collective and how does that work? Um, last, okay, I'll go backwards. Yes, we are. Um, we, yeah, pretty much, you know, it's pretty much, it's pretty democratic. It's just four of us um, working together and, you know, majority rules most of the time. Um, and we work in, like, creatively, we work really closely together and then we kind of farm out, like, you know, production between the four of us. We just, like, split things up. Um, some people are better at some things than others and, and that's just how, like, the cookies crumble. Um, in terms of, what was the question before that? That was how we had uh, the curator and versus... Platform. 
platform. Um, I would say like most of our attention is on the platform and the most of our attention has always been centered on the platform, whatever platform it was, and the curatorial things were always kind of adjacent um, for us, like super important, but they, and they were kind of, they're actually like a little bit of the engine, you know, but the whole goal, like the whole thing is that we don't want to be, we don't want to be like, we actually want to transcend the art world. We want to get out, we want to reach more people, not, you know, um, in other in other fields and not necessarily only art. So um, it kind of takes priority in a way. Um, but we really think of ourselves like, we also just think of ourselves as producers now, you know? And, I mean, we wear a lot of different hats, but, you know, yeah, go ahead. When it comes to these four, maybe yeah. original seven, how did these people come together to join? Um, great question. It was an email that an email that was sent by Solomon and David. They sent an email probably to thirty people, and it was like, let's do a magazine. Like, come on, guys, let's do something. And this was like, mind you, it was like right after the crash. Like, everyone's been laid off. Like, freelance has dried up. Like, we just got like nothing but time, and there's nothing going on. Um, no hope of getting a job. Like, it was just, you know, it was pretty bleak. So, um, and I had known, I mean, I had known Solomon for, like, at that point, I'd already known him for, like, eight years, I'd say. We were just friends, basically. And um, Marco is, like, like, my partner, and David is Solomon's partner. So that was, like, the four of us. But there were, you know, even before there were seven, there was probably, like, 20 people, and they were coming to my house, and we were just having, like, kind of, like, get-togethers and meetings to decide, like, what should we do as friends, you know? during this like period of like, you know, this tumultuous thing. Um, and we decided we should do an, a magazine online. Um, and then we just started doing shoots in our apartments. And that was basically it, you know? And it was seven people were showing up, and then there were seven, and then there were six, and then five, and then four. Was and was this always the name? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we tried out other names, but it was always this, yeah, when we, when we launched it was this. I think that the political climate definitely informs the work that we're making now, and it definitely did then too, because I think there was a lot we could kind of like hide behind, thinking like we're going in the right direction, we don't have to really be so actively involved, you know, and I think everyone was able to kind of do that during that period. Like we just really, we really were not thinking, like we thought a lot that in, during that period um, when Obama was president, especially like the early years and during the, the fallout of the crash, we thought a lot about technology, we thought about the internet, blah, blah, blah. We weren't thinking as much about we weren't thinking as much about you know how like this was gonna like how how the crash was gonna affect us in the long run you know or how like democracy was kind of like falling apart with like you know widening inequality these just weren't things that were we were not thinking about them as much as we were thinking about like like surveillance you know or like data or privacy or this or there were other things on our mind um, it was more tongue in cheek and less serious because again, we, we weren't in this environment where, you know, again, it was 10 years ago, so that was the peak of liberal democracy, and we have fallen off a cliff since then, you know, in a way. So we are just, yeah, completely is intertwined, I think, um, with the kind of work that we're making today. 
What were you doing? Were you coming from like an art place or a fashion place? Um, yeah, we were coming from, um, we all had art, we all went to art school, you know, but we lived in New York, so we all had to work and have jobs, and we were like, you know, I don't know, I mean, I worked for Vito Acconci for a couple of years, and um, Marco was working in advertising, and then I was working, in, and Salma and I were both working in fashion, too, um, at one point, and like commercial styling, whatever. Um, and that actually kind of influenced like how interested we were in, you know, kind of like big box stores like TJ Maxx and Burlington Coat Factory, like everything, like, you know, no one would lend us clothing, you know, for photo shoots and things. So we were just buying stuff and returning it and, um, and just like making weird stuff because, you know, we were really into medium and we were really into kind of like mass in this way that like, you know, it wasn't typical for like a fashion magazine. Yeah. You mentioned your seems sort of less hierarchical. I'm curious how you guys approached resolving conflict or disagreement. Um well that's tricky. I don't know. I mean there's like a lot of subtext, you know, there's like things you say and you don't say. But there's also just this kind of like, you know, that we have a lot of love for each other. And we are two couples, so like we're very invested in making it work on like you know on like a professional level, but also on a personal level. So, like I'm like the mediator. I like mediate between the boys. They're so lucky to have me <laughs> because like three guys is just like ugh, you know. Um, and yeah, we just work it out. You know, uh, it, you know, if someone really really cares about something, they kind of they can kind of sway the sway the votes or or whatever, make things work, but, you know, yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you.